you can relax, your TV will not explode or your computer will not explode in 10 seconds, it will not self-destruct, but it is, um, it is important we remember our mission uh, as we work toward the vision that we have of lives renewed and a community transformed by the power of the gospel. And we're in a season of our church year where we look at mission, at the work of the early church and the letters that were written to these early churches. We're looking at specifically Corinth, on mission in Corinth. And last week we saw the planting of the church. We saw a little bit about what the city was like. We saw how Paul saw these people as deeply loved by God, as carried by him. And as we work our way through the book, we're going to see how that provides a safe foundation for Paul to actually address some pretty critical issues, uh, ways for them to live into what God has already made true about them, if they can hold to it in faith. And today we're picking up our text at chapter 1, verse 10, and we're going to go all the way through 4 21. Now that's a huge section of text. Every week we're going to have these huge sections. This is over 1900 words. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I would encourage you uh, when the, the bulletin comes through to read the text for the week, to know what's coming up, because it will just help you. Uh, and even as we go along, I want you to, to have a, a, your iPad or your phone or your Bible in front of you, because hearing it and seeing it at the same time gives you just another way of grasping what's going on. We're going to look at, in these big chunks of text, the themes that tie them together. Because in these 1900 plus words, there's one theme that really holds the whole section of 110 to 421 together. I'm going to give it to you in one phrase, and then we're going to kind of hop through the text and look at how it all plays out. But the, the phrase is a human tendency and divine wisdom. Paul is showing how the actions of the Corinthians, what they're doing, their human tendencies are the result of poor choices in regards to what they've chosen as wisdom for living their life. And, and we need to stop by, start by mapping this whole text for you to see. So grab your Bibles or your iPad or your phone, and we're going to work our way through. I'm going to read a little bit. We'll talk a little bit. I'll read a little bit. We'll talk a little bit and, and just hit some sections. But we're going to start with chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And what I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. And what we see here in these few verses is an issue that's come up in the church in Corinth. I, ca I call it elevation by means of division. It's, it's not unusual in that society of wealth and power. Alliances were really important. It was important who you knew and what you did. And, and, and often teachers and philosophers were ranked in importance. And it even moved into the realm of ranking the gods that they worshipped in Corinth. There were objects found in archaeological digs that, that say, I belong to Aphrodite or I belong to Demeter. These, these ways of attaching yourself to a certain person or a, 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 a pagan deity. It was kind of like this is our favorite team situation, right? Rob Thiessen's on PowerPoint today. He's a Pittsburgh Steeler fan. He belongs to the Pittsburgh, or they belong to him, one or the other, right? It's the way we align ourselves. But what they were actually doing was aligning themselves with certain people 
to elevate themselves over others. Paul says, I, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you. That, that Greek word for agree literally means to speak the same. Now, it doesn't mean there's no di division or no, no, no diversity. And what it means is they all kind of come from the same source. It doesn't mean that you think everything just alike or, or that you lose that diversity, but that you realize that what you're all coming from is one. And then he moves on to this section uh, that helps them to understand why this is so important when he talks about the wisdom of the foolish cross. And I'm, I'm going to read 18 all the way to 31. We'll read it in little chunks. But, but this is kind of the core of, of what he's saying in this whole thing. Starting in verse 18, let's just read the first chunk. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise... The intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He says, in sharp contrast to aligning yourself with the wisest teachers as a way to move up the ladder, the cross puts us all on equal footing. We all go back to this one spot where we need what Jesus has to offer. And it seems foolish. He says, the one thing that unites us is that the ultimate teacher that we had, the one that we follow, was crucified. And it does seem foolish, right? What, why would you align with a crucified teacher why would you set your you know hook into somebody that looked like a failure that was crucified by Rome well this is the nature of the wisdom of God it turns everything upside down and that frustrates people if you pick it up in 122 it says the Jews demand signs the Greeks look for wisdom right they want something but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. See, this is hard for people to grasp. People want signs. They want wisdom. They want this, this beautiful thing. And what we're pointing to is a, is, is a man that we say was God in the flesh who died on a cross. And, and to admit that that is wisdom requires humility. It, it, it requires acknowledging your own need. But what it does is it places us in the very center of God's wisdom, the way God wants to do things. His foolishness is wiser than anything we have to offer. And it places us right in the center of his strength. And his weakness is stronger than our greatest strength. And when you see that, when you, when you realize that's the starting point, then we can finally rest and be honest about ourselves. We don't have to elevate ourselves by attaching ourselves here and there and to this person and that person. That's why he pulls back the curtain on, on who these I want to be affiliated with the greatest teacher people are. He says you can't do that because, because that's just going totally counter to the wisdom of the cross. Now look at verse 26. Just to remember who you are. He says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, the cross makes sense because this is the way God does things. He picks the lowly. He picks the despised. It's his, it's his modus operandi. It's the way he goes about doing things, which is good news for the foolish, the weak, and the lowly, which Paul very honestly says, that's who you are, guys. The things that are not. Unless they feel too put down, by what he's saying, he goes on to list himself, Paul, as the prime example. As I read 2, 1 to 5, I just want you to think about the context. You've got these people jockeying for position based on the, the wisdom and the eloquence and the power of their teacher. And you'd think if Paul wanted to influence then he would spend time building himself up to say, look, I'm the guy you should listen to, but this is not how it works with the wisdom of the cross. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I didn't come with eloquence or human wisdom as I pro proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear, and trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. You see, it wasn't how he spoke with eloquence, superior wisdom. He says, I was actually afraid, I was trembling, it was not persuasive. It wasn't how he spoke, it was what he spoke. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this is important because it was the message that's powerful. It was the message that brings us back to the heart of this wisdom for living, not the messenger. And he ends it by saying, guys, it's, it's important that our faith not be based on a person, not be based on a teacher, that we not try to align ourselves with a specific person, but that we realize it all flows out of the cross. And we've seen how important that is in the global church. In the past year to 18 months especially, I just Googled, and I don't recommend this, evangelical scandals of 2020. And there was story after story after story. Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, Carl Lentz of Hillsong United, and the list goes on and on and on. Highly visible, highly eloquent, respected teachers. And, and it all fell apart. Right? Paul says you've got to base your life not on the wisdom of the world, which says align yourself with the best, with the coolest, with the hippest, with the smartest, with the brightest, with the most visible. He says you've got to align yourself with the wisdom of the cross. Don't let the world define success and power. And he uses himself. He says, look at me, guys. Who, who am I? I don't even speak well. I was terrified when I was talking to you. And he continues moving us back to what that wisdom of the cross calls us to. He says it's a radically different type of wisdom. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. He, he, he says, you know, I didn't speak it beautifully and powerfully, but we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, 
but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it, has writ as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. He says we speak this hidden wisdom, something that God's destined from, for our glory before time began. He's already said this is something that, that God's been doing. It's rooted in the cross and he's been planning it all along. And now he says this weakness and brokenness, this standing in contrast to what the world thinks is wise and powerful. This is the wisdom of God way back from the beginning of time. And it's all for our good, for our own glory. But that people don't get it. He says, verse 8, none of the rulers of this world understood it. All those powerful people you want to align yourself with, they missed it. If they had understood how God works through humility and sacrifice, they never would have crucified Jesus. They would have gotten what he was saying. He says, the, 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 this way of thinking that leads to a way of living is radically different than how the world thinks and lives. And he, he ends this section with what I, I want to present to you. This is one of the most misquoted texts in the Bible. He says, no one gets the glory that God has prepared for those who love him. And he uses that verse. What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. How many of you use that verse to talk about heaven? Wow, nobody can even conceive of it, right? Well, it is about that, but it's, it's bigger than that. It's the glory of what he's got for humanity. And, and the next verse, right? How many have said, oh yeah, you can't even imagine. But what does verse 10 say? But he has revealed it to us by his spirit. So you can't imagine. It's been given to you, this beautiful glory. And it's the foolishness of the cross as the way we're supposed to live our lives. God has revealed this to us by his spirit. What's been revealed? The wisdom of God. The way of life that lines up with the cross and stands in stark contrast and this wisdom does something else. It exposes our own lives. Spirit-given wisdom of God exposes the deep roots of the division, starting at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I, I, gave, I gave, gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, aren't you mere human beings? The reason he says there's divisions, it shows me you're living by the wrong wisdom. You're still trying to anchor yourself in the way the world works. They've set their course of their lives to echo the way of the world. And that's the stuff that he says needs to be corrected. And why is it such a big deal? Why are the divisions so important? Look down at chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Now, how many of us have read that to talk about us as the temple of God? 
Well, it's true, but it's, it's a plural you. This is where Southern English is so much better than the Queen's English because we have y'all, which is plural you. This is y'all. He says, y'all, you all together are the body of Christ. You're the temple. That's who you are. You're God's temple and God's spirit dwells in your midst. That's why the divisions are so detrimental. They actually destroy what God is putting together. As you start claiming this person or that person and elevating yourselves one another, you're breaking apart the wisdom of God that has brought us all together through the foolishness of the cross. It's a big deal to break that apart. I talked just a couple weeks ago about, remember Joseph of Arimathea and how he touched the body of Christ and how we touch it. And each one of us is that body. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, if you're bringing your offering to the altar and you remember that there's an issue between you and a brother or sister, leave your gift and go be reconciled. Then come back and finish offering your gift. He, he then reverts back to the fact that their actions are showing they haven't yet grasped this wisdom of God. Look at verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. <laughs> If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, if you're thinking you're smart, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. He says, you guys have messed up your understanding of life. You think you've gotten it, but you're going the total opposite direction of the foolishness that is the wisdom of the cross. You think you're wise, but your divisions show you're not. And the point of it all comes in verses 21 to 23 of chapter 3. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. And this is why. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. All things are yours. That's, this is, I'm going to come back to this again at the end because you've got to get this point. This is the heart of the wisdom of the cross. Is that all, there's nothing you lack. You don't need to grasp for power. You don't need to elevate yourself. You can serve. You don't need to align yourself with the powerful and the impressive to make yourself look good because already all things are yours. When I was uh, just out of university, I worked at a, at a, a group home. Well, it was, a, it was a campus of a bunch of group homes, Cross North School Incorporated. And we worked with children that had mainly been taken out of their homes by juvenile court because of problems that they'd had or because their homes were not safe. And so many of the kids that came and lived in our cottages there had, had, had very, very difficult, traumatic lives. And what was interesting to me was one of the things we did was we, we ate in the, in the houses um, and we had good food and lots of it. But it didn't matter. You could always tell the kids that worried about food because I would I'd go into the room, you know, to check on things. And they would I had one kid that had 14 buns stuffed under his mattress that he had stolen in his over the past couple of days. And they were not in good shape. But see, the point was he he didn't realize because his life had taught him, you never know when you're going to get food again. You never know. So if you see a plate full of buns, you want to take all you can get and save it. See, he was afraid, and so he was grasping. And, and part of our job was to say, you know what? There'll be food tomorrow. There'll be food tonight. There'll be food the next day. And if you're hungry, you can come and ask. 
And see, Paul's saying, you guys are living your, your life according to the wisdom of the world. It says you have to grasp these things. And, he, and Paul says, I'm saying all things are yours already. You don't need to grasp. You don't need to elevate. You don't need to control. You can rest in his provision no matter what. That's what we see in the life of Jesus. That's what I'm going to come back to at the end. But, but chapter 4 uh, is where our text wraps up. I'm just going to barely touch on it where, where Paul talks about his role as an apostle because he's been saying that who is not important. So the question naturally, naturally arises, what's the role of an apostle? If you look at 4, verse 6 and 7, Now, brothers and sisters, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Once again, he's focusing on what's been taught, not... Not, not the person. He says, then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? And what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast about it as though you did not? He's trying to re-anchor them and say, look, we've even said as apostles, everything we've got is just what we've received from God. And he goes on to expose how how they think they're so far along. He says, you guys living according to this worldly wisdom and, and dividing yourself and elevating yourselves. This is, this is what you look like. Verse 8, four, chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We're fools for Christ. Oh, but you are so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you are strong. You're honored. And we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world right up to this moment. You see, he's saying our lives are trying to model this to you, but you guys are just so worried about elevating yourselves. And he ends the section, you can read the rest of it, with a a warning to listen, to evaluate, to apply what he's saying. And that's exactly what we want to do as we kind of apply these texts. How, how do we make sure that we're taking this letter to heart? David writes in Psalm 119, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. See, these are not just issues that the Corinthians need a guidance on. They're relevant to us today. We do the same thing. The world presents us with a choice in regards to the way we live. That's what I mean by wisdom. How we choose to live, what we think makes for good decisions. And the world gives us that. It's it's not necessarily overt, it's subtle. But it consists of the underlying answers to questions like, what does a good life look like? Who's a success? What's important? What am I living for? The way we answer those questions is, is what I mean by wisdom. And there are different ways. There's, there's the wisdom of the world, and what Paul's saying is the wisdom of the cross. And one of the things that this first chunk of Paul's letter makes very, very clear is that our life displays our choice of wisdom. He says it over and over, but nowhere more clearly than in chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He says, you are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? 
For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Paul, are you not mere men? Do you get, he's saying, remember he said, all things are yours. You guys aren't just mere men. But the way you're acting, the fact that there are divisions among you, the fact that you think you're so wise, the fact that you already have all you want, that you're already reigning as kings, shows that you are living according to the wisdom of the world because our life will display the wisdom that we've chosen. Just as chapter 4 shows the apostles on the bottom. And see, I, I'm sure you've had these interactions with people who have to have control over their situation. Right? We know people like that. Sometimes we are people like that. They see every interaction as oppositional. And they're afraid that people are out to get them and take advantage of them. And they're afraid to lose. And my question for them is, how is that working for you? How, what kind of life is that producing for you? When you look at the fruit of your life, is this the way you want to live? Do you see the fruits of the Spirit in your life? Do you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all those things in your life? Or are you just increasingly fearful and angry? So many people in the church today get wrapped up on Facebook and these causes, and, and it leads them to a place where they're afraid of everything and mad at everything. And I don't see that the fruit of the Spirit is fear and anger. It's because we suddenly begin to adopt this other kind of wisdom. Your life will display the wisdom you're choosing to live by. And Paul says, you know, there's the wisdom of the world, right? That the media and the culture present to us as normal, logical, and expected. And he talks about that in verses 20 and 25 of chapter 1. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. And the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. It's, it's what we see all the time around us. And then over in, in 2, 6, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. In 3.19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. See, this wisdom of the world is so often our default setting because it's so much a part of the world that we live in. We don't even realize that we've chosen it. That's one of the reasons we have to look at what our lives are producing to see what wisdom we've chosen. Because Paul says this type of wisdom leads to dissension and arrogance. Back what the first thing he dealt with in chapter 1, 10, and 11. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me there are quarrels among you. To take a look at your life. What do you see in your life? What, what, what fruit is there of the wisdom? Is there dissension? Is there arguing? Are there quarrels? Is there a sense that you have to elevate yourself above others? You have to put other people down? Are you fearful? He says in 3, 3 and 4 again, you are still worldly for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not still worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? You see, your life doesn't lie. If, if there's quarreling and dissension, and you know what? You may not be arguing with a person face to face, but let me tell you one way that quarreling and dissension manifests. You're mad at somebody, so you go and talk to somebody else about how bad they are. <laughs> it's also known as gossip. But it, it's, it's, it's socially way more acceptable than arguing with a person to their face. But it's still the same quarreling and dissension. 
Paul says in chapter 3, verse 18, do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may be wise. See, the wisdom of this world gives you a false sense that you are making it. But often that just falls through. It can't hold you up. And we even do that with religious language. We try to use that language to prop up our actions, even though our actions are based on the wisdom of the world. We use it to elevate ourselves above others. I mean, not so much as it used to be, but it used to be your denomination was one way that you elevated yourself because you had the right truth, right? You had it, and those guys, well, they're trying. You see, that's just dissensions. That's arrogance and pride because we're evaluating the world very differently. He says in chapter 4, For who makes you different than anyone else? What do you have you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you didn't? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. He's being sarcastic. You've become kings and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. And in verse 18, some of you have become arrogant. See, the wisdom of the world looks shiny. It looks good. But underneath it leads to death. And that's why Paul says we need to grasp the wisdom of God. Once again, he talks about it all throughout the passage. 130. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and redemption. All things are yours. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 7. No, we speak God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. And the results of this, despite its appearance of foolishness, the, the results of God's wisdom is that living by His wisdom leads to humility and to unity. It goes in the opposite direction of worldly wisdom. And when you look at your own life, do you, do you sense humility? Or do you feel this constant need to elevate yourself? Do you sense unity or are there broken relationships all around you? See, Paul says there's a humility that comes with this wisdom. And you're not afraid to acknowledge that whole section. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. See, there's such great freedom in that section of scripture because deep down in the quiet parts of our heart we know that very often we're not wise we're foolish we're not strong we're weak we're not the ones that are winning we're losing we're not the ones that are successful we're failing and and the world says you've got to cover that up you can't let people know that but paul says the wisdom of the cross says that's exactly the kind of people that god comes to God, so wisdom humbly allows us to see ourselves as we really are, and that draws us together to each other into unity. Don't you know, he says in 3.16 and 17, you yourselves, y'all, the plural, are God's temple. As broken as you are, as weak and foolish, God's spirit lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Don't divide, don't break Don't destroy because the the acknowledgement, humble acknowledgement of our own sin and brokenness is what actually pulls us to each other. 
And I don't think we always grasp how important that connection is. You see, we long for it. Our COVID separation has reminded us of this, right? Worldly wisdom of being busy and full, right? Fill up your life, be busy, go, 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 go. We've realized in this that what we really miss are the people and the relationships. And we need a wisdom that leads us forward in humility and unity. And Paul's astonishing claim is that God's wisdom is embodied in the cross. And when we think of wisdom, probably a lot of mental images that show up. Maybe there's an image of a guru sitting on a mountain, right? You go up to the peak and you hear, he says three sentences a year, but you hear one sentence and it changes. That's one way we look at wisdom. Or maybe it's even another galaxy, right? Wisdom, you see, however Yoda would say that, right? Maybe, maybe it's, it's wisdom. That's a picture of wisdom. Or, or maybe growth comes from the knowledge that we learn in books. We've just got to read more. We've just got to know more. It's all about knowledge. Or maybe... It's just smart people, right? There are people that are just smart. Their brains just work. And those are, that's what wisdom means for us. But Paul says wisdom is this. Wisdom is a cross. Wisdom is a man, an innocent man, dying on a cross and forgiving the people who crucified him. You see, that, that's the pathway to wisdom. <laughs> and it's foolish. It is foolish. It does not make sense. And Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, there remains a single seed. But if it dies, he says, then boom, look what happens. He knows it doesn't make sense in our world. Paul says in chapter 1, 18 to 24, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And he says, he says, this is not just the truth, this is the only truth I want to focus on. In chapter 2, verse 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The example of Jesus models the way of wisdom. It reminds us that despite what the world thinks, despite what the world values, despite what you see on TV or in movies or on Facebook or social media, lives of wisdom are cruciform. Lives of wisdom are cruciform. I love that word cruciform. I looked it up just to make sure I knew what it meant. Having the shape of a cross. Lives of wisdom have the shape of a cross, which means we follow Jesus. It means we lay down our lives. It means we don't have to elevate ourselves. We can actually surrender and serve. And we let him be the visible one. Paul, in chapter 2, describes himself, When I came to you, brothers, I didn't come with eloquence, not with superior wisdom, as I proclaim to you the testimony about God, I resolved to know nothing when I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You see, what he's doing there is trying to take the focus off of him and his ability and his perfection. Nothing is about him. He says it's all about Christ and Him crucified. And he describes those apostles, remember that in chapter 4, as the last in line, 
right? We're, we're like people being led to the, to the arena to be killed by the lions, and we're the last ones in line. We're the ones that, you know, are kind of at the end. They want the good stuff at the beginning, the strong people that are going to put up a fight, but we're the lowest of the low. And, and the question is, if it's the foolishness of the cross, if, if the wisdom of the cross is foolishness of the world, what is it that frees us to live that way? What empowers it? How do we live lives of sacrifice in a world that calls us in the opposite direction? And that comes back to that central idea, which is, if you're going to memorize any verses out of this passage, I would say 321 to 23. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. I've been doing a lot of research on trauma, especially as it relates to spiritual growth and formation. And one of the things I'm realizing over and over is that one of the keys to health and, and happiness and success in life from the world standpoint is that through your life as a child, especially as you develop, the way your brain develops, that you are aware that you are loved and accepted. There's something really powerful that happens there that we don't even know. It just changes our whole physiology, changes our personality. And, and yet trauma very often intervenes in those places and breaks and disrupts that. And, and, and it shapes the, the person's whole life. They live by this pain of, of an unmet need. And, and the beauty of the gospel is, is that what I see, it's saying, you know, that, that sense of, of you are loved, you are accepted, you are treasured, is met in the gospel. Where Paul says, all things are yours. Your holy, beloved children of God, your righteousness, your holiness, your redemption is all in him. It, it, coming to grasp spiritually with those terms can actually bring healing to situations of trauma. It can restore these neural pathways that says, I am loved. I am accepted by God. And then our call is to live that out with other people so they see it in a tangible way. Because when everything is yours, you're free all of a sudden to be nothing. You're free to be at the end of the line. You're free to follow the foolishness of the cross because you are of Christ and Christ is of God and all is yours. And that's a deep, deep wisdom. One that speaks very quietly in a world that yells everything else in opposition to that fact. But I, I want to tell you, that way of wisdom, all of yours, all, are your, uh, all is yours, and you are of Christ and Christ is of God, that deep, deep conviction leads to life. It's the way we're called to follow, even though it may look foolish to the world. All things are yours. Be free. Let's pray. God, it's a, a big chunk of this letter we covered, and there's lots to see there. I pray that you can bite through the, the speech morning and his attempt to put it together and, and give people just a picture of being at the, the, the crossroads of wisdom. Help us to, to recognize when we are embracing what the world is telling us is important. Help us to let go of that and receive what Paul calls the foolishness of the cross. That you became a man, that you, you lived, you died as a way to make us um, 
to open the doorway for us to be forgiven and restored to our relationship with God, that your spirit now lives in us and that all things are ours, that we have nothing to fear even if our world falls apart, even if we struggle, even if we suffer, even if we lose, even if we die. There is nothing that can take you away from us. All things are ours and we are of Christ and Christ is of God. Embed that wisdom deep within us, God, so that we can live uh, out of that. So we can be free from what the world says is important. So that we can make choices in line with, with the cross, that our lives can be cruciform as we point beyond ourselves to you, the giver of all good things. In Jesus' name, amen. I've got a friend, many of you know Kevin Brandt. Uh, about a little over a year ago, he bought a little house and uh, decided he would rip it basically down to studs and redo the whole thing. And I remember going over there and you could literally see from the front of the house straight through because he had torn everything except the, the basic structure apart. And he did that to uncover anything that needed to be fixed and updated. And then he rebuilt the whole thing. And very often in our lives, what we don't realize is that we've built our lives on a wisdom that will not hold us. <laughs> and, and sometimes it's suffering and struggle and difficulty that comes that rips everything away. The drywall is pulled away. And, and it looks like our house is falling apart. But what it's actually doing is renewing it. And it's, make, it's tearing away that old wisdom and saying, look, there's something bigger. There's something deeper so that you can rebuild based on something more profound more powerful, something that will carry you. And it's, it's that verse I've come back to over and over. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are of Christ and Christ is of God. It's my prayer this week that you can begin to see in that stripping away God is calling you to endorse or embrace or build on a different, deeper wisdom and live out of that this week. Amen.